Russia's opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, was targeted for assassination and now sits in prison. But he remains a vibrant presence in the Oscar-nominated documentary, Navalny. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. The film Navalny premiered a year ago at the Sundance Film Festival and is now streaming on HBO Max. Today, the film seems almost preordained to be a success, but as the director, Daniel Rohr, explains in this interview, nothing about it went according to plan. In recent years, Navalny has been the most prominent public opponent to Vladimir Putin. He was jailed and attacked, but the most brazen attempt on his life took place in August 2020. On a commercial flight inside Russia, Navalny became seriously ill from what was eventually diagnosed to be a nerve agent. He was evacuated to Germany, where he spent time in a coma before recovering in the fall. Daniel met up with Navalny during that period in Germany as his team was trying to uncover who was behind the poisoning. In the opening minutes of the film, we hear Daniel try to ask Navalny an earnest question. But Navalny pushes for a different approach. You might hate this, but I really want you to think about it. If you are killed, if this does happen, what message do you leave behind to the Russian people? Oh, come on, Daniel. No, no way. It's like you're making a movie for the case of my death. Like, again, I'm, I'm ready to answer your question. But please let, me, let it be uh, another movie, movie number two. Like, let's make a thriller out of this movie, and in the case I would be killed, let's make a boring movie of memory. Ultimately, Daniel's film does play like a thriller. A key figure in the narrative is the Bulgarian investigative journalist Christo Grozev of Bellingcat. Christo investigated previous cases of Russian poisoning and brings a skill for digging up obscure data. He explains his methods in the film. Traditional journalism implies you meeting with a source and that source telling you a story. In today's world of fake news, we don't trust sources because we don't trust humans. We trust data. Bellingcat is an organization of digital nerds, most of us with a little bit of almost autistic-like fascination with numbers. Every time you use your email, you make a phone call, make a doctor's appointment, take a plane or a train, anytime you use the ATM. Every time you actually look at the screen of your phone, that leaves a trace. In a place like Russia, imagine the person who works at a travel agency that has access to the flight manifest. They're getting, what, 25 bucks a day as a salary? And then for another 25, they would be able to sell that flight manifest to anybody who asks for it, just because they'll double their income for the day. This is a whole industry. Data brokers are on the dark web. You negotiate a price, and within a few minutes, they say, yeah, I can get that data for you by tomorrow. Christo was able to identify the Russian agents suspected of Navalny's poisoning. The film contains an extraordinary scene where Navalny starts calling those agents and poses as their colleague to coax them into revealing details about their operation. The film culminates in January 2021 when Navalny chooses to leave his exile and returns to Russia on a plane. When he lands, he's immediately arrested and has been in prison ever since.
These are all facts that you can read in news reports, but they take on a different emotional weight in the context of this film as we watch Navalny interact with his family and friends. I spoke to Daniel on February 14th when he was in Los Angeles running the gauntlet of award events. This is only his second film, completed when he was still in his late 20s. His first film was Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band, a history of the 1960s rock group. Once Were Brothers had an auspicious debut. It was the opening night of both the Toronto Film Festival and Doc NYC in fall 2019. But its theatrical release was more rocky, happening in the winter of 2020 as the world was going into pandemic lockdown. I asked Daniel how he was feeling about his career at that point. I think I had an expectation that because of the success of that movie, because it had Scorsese and Ron Howard and all these big executive producers, I would be fine. I'd get it to make another movie. Someone would come along and offer me another movie, another music doc, and I wouldn't have to worry about having a career. But lo and behold, this pandemic hit, and the momentum of that film grinded to a halt, and there were no more events, and there were no more film festivals to go to. And I was filled with anxiety and this profound disappointment and and frustration that here I had made this film that resonated, that existed in the world, that people saw and heard about an open tiff, and it means nothing for me. My career, seemingly, it felt like in that moment, had as much insecurity as it did before I made that film. Um, and that was very, very difficult for me. And so I got very depressed and very upset and... I was in Toronto and I didn't, I presumed that I wouldn't make another movie and that I would, I started thinking about other careers even and, and thinking about going back to school. Um, but there was this thing that was sort of kicking around the background, this project that I had been working on with these producers in LA that I didn't really know, but we had been working a little bit on this thing. And it had to do with cultural preservation in conflict zones and, and, and it was about this guy called Carl von Habsburg, who was this very interesting character. Um, and Carl was super fascinating to me. This was a guy who um, was is the ancestral Archduke of Austria. So his father was the last crown prince of the empire. So he comes from this very important European royal family. Um, and one day after the pandemic really grounded all the airplanes, he called me and he said that he has this friend who's this journalist named Christo Grozev who works at this place called Bellingcat. And they were working on some sort of story in Ukraine, um, which sounded interesting enough to me. So in, in sort of like a Hail Mary type of move, I flew to Europe in September of 2020 when no one was flying to Europe and everyone was still terrified and there were no vaccines yet. And I went to go meet this guy, Christo. And... Christo and I and one of the film's producers, Odessa Ray, embarked on this journey to Ukraine to try and see about a story there. Um, but a, another kick in the teeth happened when we were sort of kicked out of Ukraine. The, the government was not too thrilled to have us there. We were very assertively encouraged to leave. And so in October, November, November of 2020, uh, yeah, 2020, I was back in Vienna not sure what I would do next. Uh, the first film never materialized in, in anything. The second film uh, 
was languishing. There wasn't really a film to make, it seemed. And I was, you know, my I was feeling anxious and very upset and depressed and angry and embittered. And I always had this sense that if I just really work hard, really work hard and, and stay focused at my craft, I'll be able to do this and turn it, turn filmmaking into a job. And I just felt like it was just, I was down on the ground and the documentary world, the documentary gods were just kicking me in the teeth. And the message I was receiving was go do something else. You know, you got to make a film. Most people don't even get to make one film. You got to make a film. People saw that film, but go be a lawyer or something. And that's how I was feeling for a few days is as I was trying to figure out what to do in Austria. And one morning, Christo was going to come and meet with us, Odessa and I, to tell us about the fate of our Ukrainian film. And that's when Christo walked in and said, we can't go back to Ukraine, but there's something else you might be interested in. And my state of mind in that moment was desperation and sadness. I was almost in mourning for this career that I wasn't able to get off the ground. I tried so hard, but it just wasn't going to happen for me. And he said, there's something else you might be interested in. You know that Navalny guy? And I said, yeah, Christo, I know that Navalny guy. Christo said, I think I have a lead in who tried to poison him. And fully and completely, immediately, like very few moments in your life, a light bulb, bulb goes off and you you see it all in front of you. And in that instance, I saw it all in front of me because I was very quickly able to triangulate that here I am sitting with Christo, who's quite plausibly the one human being in the world that could write to Alexei Navalny and say that he has a lead into the poisoning and Navalny would buy that and say, okay, come, let's talk. And we were so, ready to so roll. So to we clarify had... here, let me just set yeah. the scene here. Sure. You're, this is fall 2020. The attempted poisoning of Navalny took place in August 2020. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this is happening just a, a a few months after. A few months after he was poisoned, and I think a few weeks after he woke up from his coma, because he was in a coma for three or four weeks or something like this. So Navalny was poisoned on August 20th, 2020. And these conversations probably took place at the very middle December, like the, no, sorry, middle October, October 14th or something like this. So Christo Grozev, as an independent investigator, was looking into um, who might have poisoned uh, Navalny. But from what you're describing, it sounds like he didn't yet have a relationship with Navalny himself. That's exactly right. He did not have a relationship with Navalny. He he knew who Navalny was, of course, being an analyst and a student of, of the Russia sphere and passionate about Russia. But he didn't know Navalny. They had never communicated but they knew each other on Twitter, and occasionally, I believe they had sort of con conflicted with one another on Twitter. And Christo had had given Navalny a tough time on Twitter, and so on and so forth. Um, and so Navalny was receptive enough to Christo's or original outreach that Christo was invited to go and meet with Alexei. Navalny was very familiar with Christo's work involving the investigation to find the Skripal, the poisoners who tried to to the poison Sergei Skripal in the United Kingdom. And Christo cracked that story. 
So when it came to Russian state poisonings, Christo was really the guy. Um, and Navalny understood that. Navalny said, come and show us your findings. And Christo said, it'd be my pleasure to come. But I happen to be with this film crew and we like the idea of making a documentary about this. Do you want to make a film? And my understanding is that Maria and Alexei, Maria being Navalny's chief investigator and the woman who produces a lot of the, the content for the YouTube show, um, had already been thinking about doing some sort of film project. Knowing full well they lacked the technical knowledge and expertise to make a film, they were just interested in exploring the medium. And so the second part of Christos' pitch, which is let's, I have, I'm with this film team, uh, can they come too? they were receptive to. And they said, okay, bring them along, no promises. We'll meet them, but you know, we'll see where it goes essentially. So Christo, Odessa and I snuck across the German-Austrian border, which was closed due to the pandemic. And we flew to, or sorry, we drove across Austria and Germany to this little shadowy town in the Black Forest where Navalny was hiding and recovering. And we met with him and I had the opportunity to pitch him on a film project. Um, and he was receptive. You got it going. Um, we see in the film that as you're interviewing uh, Navalny, he's, he's pushing back uh, on you, um, telling you that you, you should envision this as, a, as an action film, not as a documentary. Um, what were those interactions like and what was it like for you to gone from interviewing aging rock and roll stars and once were brothers to now be, uh, talking to this very famous dissident? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. Well, the first part of your question I'll speak to was, and this was very important. The first time we ever met Alexei. One of, one of the topics of conversation that came up quite organically was the question of editorial control. Navalny and his people had never participated in a film like this. They didn't really understand their sort of rules of engagement. And they, I think, in the beginning thought that there would be some sort of way that we could do this where they have what they called veto power. If we got to the end of the road and we were in the edit and there was something that they wanted to take out of the movie, they wanted to make sure that they set this up so they would have the power to take it out of the movie. Well, of course, that type of editorial control is, is dramatically inappropriate and would would impact the quality of, of the film, undoubtedly, and the seriousness of the film. And in that very first conversation about editorial control, I made it very clear in no uncertain terms that there is the captain of a ship and the conductor of a symphony and the director of a film. And although we want to make this film in the spirit of collaboration, make something that we can all be proud of at the end of the day, if we reach that fork in the road where you guys want to go one way and I want to go the other, we go my way. And I think that was very difficult for Alexei and particularly for his staff, for Maria, who was in that meeting, Maria Pevchik, who has been safeguarding him and, and the gatekeeper for many, many years. Um, but Navalny, I think, appreciated the chutzpah of my pitch, the fact that I, I was not sugarcoating ever, anything, that I told them exactly 
how I thought this should go. And they sort of agreed to that. Remarkably, I, I told them that they can go hire someone else who will carry out their marching orders, but that's not what I have on offer here. So we started shooting the next day and, and you know, the rest is, is history. And of course, a year later, when we were editing the film, I had th th that speech that I gave about, you know, being the, the conductor of the symphony and the captain of the ship. When we reached that moment in the edit, when Navalny's people wanted to take something out and, and quite uh, passionately demanded something be taken out. And I stood my ground, remembering that first encounter and said, true to my word, I will not do it. Um, the second part of your question speaks to the, the nature of working with Navalny and, and interviewing him and, and how that contrasted with my last film. Well, one of the major differences between working, interviewing Navalny and interviewing you know, an aging rock star, for example, is that Alexei Navalny uh, is a, a politician, but he is a master media manipulator in a lot of ways. I would say that one of Navalny's great skills is contorting and shaping the media to achieve his political objectives. So the question then became, how am I being weaponized by this guy? How is Daniel, as film director and film crew, part of his political calculus? And in that sense, it was like a game that we had. He was using me, I was using him, and it really speaks to the nature of the documentary subject uh, dynamic. And I think it comes, it, it, it presents itself in that opening scene that you just spoke to. When Navalny, I ask him a question and he says, no, 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 I'm not gonna answer that question. That's a boring question. You're making some movie in the case that I die. This movie's gonna be a thriller. Let's, let's make it a thriller. And he's directing me. And this sort of question of who's directing who is threaded into the fabric of the movie, the sort of the meta-narrative uh, uh, of the film. Um, in, and it's my hope that we conclusively answer it by the end of the movie, by including moments that are, um, you know, hot mic moments and things like this that certainly Navalny wouldn't want to put in the movie. Um, and it was very important to me that those specific moments went into the film. Is there a moment that stands out to you uh, in the film that, that you know, you feel pleased that that you got in that that's more your shaping than than maybe what Navalny would would have shaped a film as yeah there's there are a couple moments one of the ones is is this moment towards the end of the film we see Navalny in the interview setup except it's clear that the interview has, has stopped I've said cut or I've said okay we can take a break and everyone's milling about and Navalny is standing in front of the camera in situ um, on the set, talking in Russian to Maria, his 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 sort of lieutenant, and they're speaking in Russian about me in front of me, knowing that I can't understand the language, but not having not being savvy enough to realize they're still mic'd up and you know losing sight of that part of it. And in that moment, we have this this uh, this moment of almost vulnerability from Alexei, where he says, "Am I doing a good job?" Is this sound okay? And then Maria says, yeah, your eyes look a little, you know, unkind and, you know, you seem a little bit tired. Does, is it annoying you, all the questions he's asking you about, you know, your past Chernobyl and stuff? Is that annoying? I can get him to stop. I can regulate this. This sort of, this is the type of thing she's talking about. 
And when we found that, it was such an interesting glimpse into their dynamic and into, it was probably the only moment of Navalny looking slightly vulnerable and, and, and having a moment of um, um, low self-esteem or, or um, something like this. And when we found it, we put it in the movie and, you know, I, I, <laughs> I know that it bumped for Navalny's people, um, but it was a very important ingredient for the rest of us. I want to ask you about the scene that everyone walks away from this film uh, thinking about and talking about. And Navalny's obtained a list of phone numbers from Christo of uh, suspects who, um, who he thinks uh, tried to poison him. And he starts making calls and he he's he's impersonating another Russian agent and he gets one uh, of the suspects um, on the phone and, and gets him talking about uh, about the plot to, to, to poison Navalny. Can you describe, you know, what that day of shooting was like if, um, you know, what your preparations for were, could you have prepared for it? So the conceit of that day was just as you described, Navalny was going to be calling up the members of his kill team the morning that this big investigation was to be released. In the few hours before these guys got exposed and, and their lives would be changed. And he thought that he would call them up and try and prank them. He would try and pose as a high-ranking FSB assistant. And he would say, I know that you tried to poison, uh, tell me about, tell me about the, he would pose as a high-ranking FSB assistant. And he'd say, tell me about the plan to kill Navalny. Why didn't it go well? Why did it fail? And I thought that this was just political theater. I, I thought that when I woke up that morning, we would not capture anything meaningful. But we started shooting, and an hour went by, then an hour and a half, and I was getting pretty sleepy. It was like six in the morning at this point. And then on one of the last phone calls, one of the last sort of Hail Mary attempts to get one of these guys, I recognized that the conversation was progressing a little bit longer than some of the other ones. And then I noticed that Maria, Navalny's lieutenant, her jaw unhinges and hits the floor. And there's this expression written across her face that suggests total shock. And I saw that and a bolt of lightning shot up and down my spine. And I realized what was happening. And I made sure that we had enough battery in the camera, that there was enough hard drive space. And, you know, we just kept shooting. And I didn't understand the, the, the full extent of that scene by virtue of the fact that I don't speak Russian, but I knew that it was extraordinary. And I knew that these guys were getting the goods. And uh, I knew immediately after we shot it that this was going to be a very powerful part of this film. And what was your crew like in that room? How many people are there for you? When we were in the room, um, it was myself. I was shooting with the, the DP, Nikki Waddle, and um, the sound. With two different cameras or? or two, just, just two cameras set up. Nikki was shooting the two shot. I was shooting on a long lens off to the side. And then Marcus Feta, the sound guy, was sort of up in a little nook tucked up above the room that you can sort of see his feet in the shot and then hiding in the kitchen was one of the film's producers odessa ray 
Um, so there's really four of us. There's three actually filmmaking crew people and Odessa in, in the kitchen hiding. Um, and this is one of those shoots where we were understaffed and under-resourced. So when we finished shooting that scene, I then had to take all the cards out of the cameras and start doing the, the data management um, before the next part of the day would start at 10 or 11 o'clock. Um, and it was one of these, these moments where you're sleeping for three hours a night or you have to get up every, you know, 45 minutes. You can sleep for an hour or an hour and a half and you have to wake up and transfer another card. Um, it was, it was, you know, like an extraordinary fever dream making this movie. Uh, and, and you knew it when you were in the middle of it, that it was an extraordinary fever dream. So I tried my very best to, you know, uh, take contemporaneous notes and do as many drawings and, and, and these sorts of things as I could just to remember what was happening every day. Now, at the same time that you're making this film, Navalny's own operation is putting out their own uh, YouTube videos um, that had a very high viewership. So, you know, some of these videos have you know more viewers than most document independent documentary films uh, get. I wondered, did that make you nervous that they were their own media production team that you know in the time might have felt like that they were you know competing or scooping you? Yeah, I, I never had that sense. Um, and I think that speaks to the very nature of, of my original pitch to Alexei. Um, what I told Navalny when we first met is I, I really just tried to highlight the difference between a YouTube show and a documentary. And I explained to him that the currency I really um, uh, deal with is emotion. And when someone watches a YouTube video, they might you know, get some amazing information and know more about the world after they watch it. But what I'm more interested in is people watching a film and then feeling it. They, they have a strong emotional reaction to the movie after they, after they watch it. Um, and I think that sounded a little artsy fartsy to Navalny. That's not something that really resonated with him. But when it came to taking the footage from the phone call, the prank call, for example, I understood immediately that this had to be weaponized and that the Russian public, there, there was a more vital need for the Russian public to hear this tape, hear this recording and see it than, than to have us save it for the movie. Um, and so, you know, we immediately, I understood that they had to release it and I was fine with that. I understood twofold, two things. First off, the, the, their primary audience is Russian speaking world. Um, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that, um, once they release this footage, there will be a response from the Kremlin. And so I can film that response in real time. This sort of information warfare, this jostling back and forth will now become part of our film. Um, and, uh, that's exactly what happened. Um, the other day of shooting I want to ask you about is when Navalny decides to go back to Russia, uh, knowing that he's likely to be imprisoned or, or worse. Can you talk about the the mood of his team and, and how you um, set out to, to capture that for your film? Yeah, that morning was pretty awful. I remember 
that it was probably the most uh, intense and stressful morning, one of the most stressful mornings of my life. So you can only imagine how how stressful it must have been for Navalny. And I understood that this was a moment that he would naturally want to share with his close colleagues and his family. Um, and this is one of these moments in documentary filmmaking where you you are conflicted by wanting to respect this individual and and their space, but the film is my first priority. And so you have to sort of be a nudgenik and get the access and be annoying and be shameless in that way in that moment to say, I know that this is one of the most intense moments of your life, but you must let me in. And Navalny said that he'd give me 15 or 20 minutes to film in the hotel room that morning. And I was sort of standing out, waiting outside, sitting outside the room. And one of the film's producers needed him to sign a release form or something. And so I sort of stood up and was standing behind Odessa. And he saw me standing there with the camera and I wasn't filming. It was just sort of by my feet. Um, and he started screaming at me and he really chewed my ass out. And it was the first time he'd ever spoken to me like that. And, you know, I, I just sort of dissolved out of the room and, and sat back down in the hallway and uh, was upset that I thought that maybe I had uh, ruined my chances of getting into the room for my 15 minutes. Um, but lo and behold, about 20 or 30 minutes later, he, I was waved in and it was a small room and there were a lot of people in there and it had this weight. There was this heaviness in the air. It felt like, you know, you were sitting Shiva or something like this. Like it just had this intensity. And I really, I was, I tried to find a place to sit where I could just perch myself and not move. And if you just sit there really quietly and you don't, and you look through the viewfinder, I like to shoot in those moments through the viewfinder so no one can make eye contact with you. And if there are no eyes to catch, you sort of disappear. Um, and so I found this little perch and I just ignored the clock and I just kept shooting. And I was there for about, you know, 40 or 50 minutes. And, and some of this footage is in the movie. But when I walked back into the room, Navalny apologized to me. When I sat down and started filming, he said, I'm sorry for telling you to get the fuck out of here. Um, and that's also in the movie. But we shot that scene. He sits for the road which is a Russian tradition. You sit before you travel. Um, and then he hugged his colleagues goodbye and he was off. And there was certainly this, this knot in all of our stomachs that it's like, what is the future that this man is going back to? I, I didn't have a chance to, to give him, shake his hand or give him a hug or wish him luck uh, because I was filming. And I, my first prerogative was to the movie. Um, and, you know, I sort of felt badly about that afterwards. Like I didn't get to say goodbye to him. Uh, but his last moment of freedom that I saw him for is when he drove, the car left and he went to the airport. And then we had to film the sort of epic scene of him flying home. And uh, we had two cameramen in the plane, on the plane with him, sitting in front and behind him. Then we had a crew in... Berlin with his colleagues and another crew in Vienna with his, with Christo. And then there were, there were shooters on the ground in Russia covering the protests. And so I wanted to have every, every part of the, the geography, every space, the plane, the ground here, there covered. Cause I understood that this scene, you would cross between space and time. 
And uh, it wasn't until a week or two later when I got the footage from those really brave DPs who shot that that stuff on the plane that I realized how remarkable the scene would be. The, fo- the footage was just breathtaking. It was like, you know, I we were watching as as the plane was being held in a holding pattern. They weren't landing the plane. And it, you know, the whole thing was just like this, this drama of, of epic proportions. The whole world was watching this plane hovering around in circles around Moscow as they were trying to figure out what to do. And we didn't know if they would land it in a different city, if they would pull him off the plane and arrest him there, if they would shoot him on the tarmac, if we didn't know what would happen, but we watched with the rest of the world as he went to passport control and very quietly and unceremoniously was taken away and disappeared for, you know, 24 hours. Um, and that was his last moment of freedom. The last moment, and this is something that only struck me recently, the last moment of Alexei Navalny's freedom is depicted in the movie. Uh, when he kisses his wife goodbye and he's 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 taken away and he has not been a free man since. Uh, I want to ask you about his wife, uh, Yulia, who uh, is as compelling a figure as, as he is in uh, in this film. Um what has what have your interactions been like with her as the film has come out into the world? Well, Yulia was very skeptical, I think, when we were making the movie. Um, I think she was a bit annoyed that she had to tolerate an annoying camera crew, uh, which I appreciate. Um, her family was going through this, you know, extraordinary, sh- stressful time. Um, but then after the film came out, uh, I think once Yuli was able to to see the movie first off, and then experience its reception, um, you know, I think the the I'm trying to think of when the, the first time she she you know uh, was there for for one of the extraordinary six or seven minute standing ovations, you know, one of these amazing epic things. Um. But once she was able to gauge that and feel it and feel the love and the reception for this movie and, and you know, it started winning awards and all this, um, you know, then she started to participate <laughs> and be um, uh, a big supporter of the movie. And every time, and she likes, she Yuli really likes to watch it. I think she enjoys, she must love seeing Alexei up there as she remembers him, not as he is now. Um, and I think that is how a lot of Russian people feel we've taken this film around the world and you know i've had countless young russian men and women who are newly exiled from their nation feeling lost um and and sickened by this horrible war and feeling guilty because of their nationality who watch this movie and for the first time in a long time see a small flicker of hope in navalny and and what he represents for for russia's potential and for russia's future and that's probably been the most meaningful part of releasing this film can you update us on on what the current situation is with navalny yeah navalny is in a very challenging spot right now uh you know it's possible that he's never been in in greater peril when he since he's been in prison um a few weeks ago navalny was relegated to perpetual solitary confinement this is unprecedented in the russian penal system which is known to be particularly brutal but this is especially brutal. He's in a small cell. Um, he doesn't have access to his lawyers. There's no attorney-client privilege anymore. Um, he hasn't seen his family, I think, in a year. His visitation rights have been revoked. Um, and the prison authorities do everything they can do to 
make Navalny's life miserable. So last month they were weaponizing other prisoners as biological agents and they'd send in some they'd they'd send in someone with tuberculosis or COVID or who's running a fever to make Navalny very ill. And then Navalny gets sick and they'll deprive him of civilian doctors and take him to the prison infirmary and inject him with unknown antibiotics, uh, which I can imagine is terrifying for Alexei. Um, and last week they installed ultra bright lights in his cell, uh, which are, you know, have the intended, are intended to drive him uh, insane. Um, and we know that he's lost about 17 pounds in the last three or four weeks. So Navalny's not doing well. It almost seems like this regime regime is trying to murder him slowly. And, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult for us, um, to reconcile that reality. Uh, but all we can do is keep, keep encouraging people to see the movie and make sure as many people as possible are able to see the movie and support the film and tell their friends to watch the film. Um, because I do believe that there is a correlation between Navalny's survival and longevity and how well he is known and how, how many people say his name and how he reverberates through the global consciousness. I think this all matters. Many weeks or months now you've been taking this film around. Uh, the film has been winning awards and you're, I'm, I'm interviewing you when you're in the middle of the Hollywood award circuit. Uh, yesterday you were at the Oscars nominee lunch, uh, uh, amongst the world of actors and celebrities. And I wonder what your experience has been like going through that, knowing at the same time that every day Putin's government is trying to make life worse for Alexei Navalny. Well, that's an excellent question, Tom. And one of one aspect of this that has been very challenging for me is that throughout this entire year, I have been experiencing this pretty deep guilt. As a result of this film, my life has expanded and blown up in the most miraculous ways. It really, I call this my year of miracles. Um, and as I think about that, I think about how Navalny's life, while mine has been expanding, his has contracted to a small little room where he's being tortured by the Russian government. Um, and the guilt of my success being predicated on Navalny's um, pain is was is and was very very difficult for me to reconcile. Um, but I also understand um, that the recognition that the awards and the film brings to Navalny and his plight are meaningful for him, and particularly one recognition um, before Navalny went back, one of the last conversations we had, he told me his expectations for this movie. And he told me in no uncertain terms that he wanted me to, to finish the film in one calendar year, get it finished very quickly. And he wanted the film to be nominated for an Oscar because that would really piss off the Kremlin. And I looked at him and I said, I cannot promise you that I'll get this film nominated for an Oscar. Uh, there's a lot that goes into that and a lot of it's out of my control but I promise you that I will try my very best and work as hard as I can to try and achieve that objective. And so I have tirelessly worked and campaigned and, and, and done all the things you have to do and, and made the right lists, including your very prestigious and important lists with the objective of getting this film nominated for an Oscar because there is no greater platform for a movie 
and there's no greater attention that a movie can drive than, than that honor. Um, and so when we achieved that honor and when we were nominated for an Oscar, for me, I, was, I, I thought it was interesting that I felt a sense of relief in a way. Um, and I felt the guilt that I had been experiencing sort of evaporate and dissipate a little bit. Um, and I was left with the understanding that I left no stone unturned. I did everything I could do and we accomplished the mission. We reached the mountaintop. Um, and Navalny was going to go back to Russia no matter what. Um, but because we were there to bear witness and make this film, he now has this vehicle to keep his name in the consciousness and invite millions and millions of people who otherwise would not be familiar with this story to to engage with his story and get to know who he is and get to know what he does and, and all of these things. Um, and so I was able to release some of that guilt. Um, you know, the, the, the glitz and glamor of this is, is, is not interesting for me. I don't really enjoy it. I get a bit anxious at these big events. Um, I really like seeing my friends like, you know, Sarah Dosa, who, who directed Fire of Love and Sean X and who, who did all the breeds. The three of us have become like, you know, the three amigos on, on this tour that we're on. And I always like spending time with, the, with them. But otherwise, I'm, I'm quite keen to get back to my normal life and go make another movie. Um, because I feel like, you know, we, I, I did it. You know, we, we, we accomplished the objective. The, the nomination to me is the win. And um, I know that it meant a great deal to Navalny and his family. And that is what matters to me. I want to thank Daniel Rohrer for speaking with me. His film Navalny is now streaming on HBO Max. I hope you'll follow our Instagram at Pure Nonfiction. Throughout March, we have special guests taking over the feed, reporting from True False, Miami, South by Southwest, CPH Docs, and more. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at Pure nonfiction.net. <laughs>